Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And and this this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, we are so excited to have Santana Setien here, whose wonderful debut novel, Gold Diggers, um, I just finished reading and loved. Uh, Welcome. Hi, nice to be here. Uh, I want to read your bio. I think we'll just dive in from there because I have many questions. Okay. We don't want to... All right. Well, no, no, me is fine. I don't care. Ditch, we, the, ditch the format. What we, do I care? We normally do. What are we working on? Starting with us, because otherwise we'll never circle back. So we could do a very quick, what are we working on? Then we'll read her. Yeah, great. What are you working on? I'm waiting for notes from my agent, who is our agent, <laughs> uh, who is wonderful. And um, and uh, I'm so patient about waiting. Boy, am I good at that. So I'm, you know... <laughs> <laughs> reading a lot, cleaning a lot. <laughs> I think that's the definition of a an artist's life, right? The waiting. Yes. Yeah. Lots of waiting. So um, yeah. That, how about you? <laughs> uh, in two words, I'm finally putting together some of the prep for a YouTube channel that I want to launch. So there you go. Yay. Um, Sanjana, what are you working on? Right now I'm moving. That is my only creative project. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm working on the adaptation um, of the book. Um, And then I've got some new prose that uh, I, there is the reason I moved. I needed a new office so that I could actually make things. That's so exciting. So, and Mindy Kaling is doing a series. Is that the adaptation you're talking about? Yeah. So it's been optioned for um, a series. So we don't know if it'll get made or anything, but I'm kind of beginning that process with the production company starting to turn into a pitch, eventually a pilot, fingers crossed. That sounds amazing. I can't, I can't wait to see it. So forces that be, um, (laughs) let me just read your, your bio. Um, a Paul and Daisy Soros fellow. Sanjana Setian is a 2019 graduate of the Iowa writers workshop. She has worked as a reporter in Mumbai and San Francisco with nonfiction bylines for the New Yorker, the New York times, food and wine, the Boston globe, the San Francisco Chronicle, and more. And her award-winning short fiction has been published in Boulevard, Joyland, Salt Hill, and the Master's Review. And I will just add that Gold Diggers has gotten so much acclaim, incredible blurbs and best ofs and all sorts of things. Um, Too much for me to know by heart, but congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. So one of the things I... um, there are sort of two burning questions that I want to make sure we get to. So I'm going to start with 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 structure um, because um, and so the books the book has a sort of a prologue uh, with Anjali who is the mother of of the sort of generation <laughs> and um and and then and, and that's in third person and then it goes to a first person narration from Neil who's our who's our narrator then for the rest of the book um, and. Also, it starts with him as a teenager, um, or, and so I'm not that he's. I guess he's narrating. Anyway, we'll talk. That's what sort of all the stuff I want to talk about. So, how did you decide to go <laughs> chronologically instead of do the like weaving back and forth, or was that ever a question? How did you sort of set up the structure? Oh, I tried to do the weaving back and forth. I think it's way harder. Um, mm-hmm. I defaulted to chronology because it it was the easiest way to build the thing. Um, in college, I had a, uh, well, she's still my friend. Um, I have a wonderful friend who read my work a lot in college when I was less coherent than I am now, but I've always been a messy writer. And she was like, there are so many moving parts in everything you write. If you could just go chronologically, I would be able to follow all the other moving parts. Mm. 
And so I think I just trusted chronology after that. Um, it just like, there's something about like the March of time. That's just like, that's a built-in plot. I want to do a bunch of other pyrotechnical things. So if I, if I make one variable stable, that'll, that'll work. This is something I talk to students about all the time too. It's just like, I know you want to show off on every front, go really plain on one or two fronts and then you'll see how, what else you can do. So I, I kind of just, just wrote it that way. I do have to write out of chronology in order to know what else is happening in the world. I don't know how, how you all are, but, but I have to do a lot of discovering outside of chronology. And then when I put it together, a timeline is, is stable and helpful. That is amazing. Yeah, I, I kind of love it. It was sort of like an aha moment almost. Like, oh, look, you can just start here. Was there any concern? Wait, wait so yeah. you were like, oh my gosh, you can start at the beginning <laughs> and then just go I know to the end? That was so radical. That was just <laughs> outside of my, yeah, experimental even, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And then, um, And then was there any concern about his being a teenager at the start, like that sense of, you know, are, will adults read teenage narrators or? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there's a like craft answer to this question and then there's like a political answer to this question. And the, the, the craft answer is um, it doesn't matter if someone's a teenager, right? If you are thinking about where the actual narration um, sits. Uh, and so this is something that I, I think a lot about is this idea of point of telling that, is one of those like behind the scenes things that writers sometimes talk about, but readers don't think about, but it's, you know, that idea, like where is the narrator sitting in relation to the events of the story? Um, and so I knew that Neil was going to be sort of a 20 something speaker of his teenage self, which is why he's allowed to be a little wiser mm -hmm. than your average teenager, but also still silly in all the, all the right ways. So I knew that even though it was a teenager, it was really kind of a 20 something um, voice. Uh, the the political answer I have to this is I think that this is something that like women get a lot of criticism about in a way that like like Neil is the same age as Holden Caulfield and like we don't consider the Catcher in the Rye YA um, but there is definitely like some like a few people have called this book YA and I, mm -hmm. I think there's some wonderful stuff happening in YA literature but this isn't YA absolutely um, and I, I think some of it too is like uh so, some of it seems to also be like a little racialized because like you'll not to add all of the identities on top of one another but like Sally Rooney's characters in normal people start in high school and it traces them it's almost the same age range totally. yes but I feel like people see like a writer of color, and they kind of assume that the only reason I would write a book is to represent my community right. and to like let other little brown girls like encounter <laughs> a book with people like them. I'm like, that's zero percent how I think about anything. <laughs> so I think some of the like anxiety that I had was, um, yeah, what you said, like, will adults pick this up because mm -hmm. there's a young narrator? I had hoped that its literary quality would like get through. And I think, and I think really many readers it has, but the, the angle about like whether or not we'll listen to a young person's voice in mm -hmm. literature is very fraught and very interesting, I think. 
think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really agree with you there. And um, so, okay, so I want to ask another question. I think there's an angle on this question that, that's like the Terry Gross angle, which I really don't like and don't want to ask, which is like, how could you ever write a boy like you? We are two <laughs> alien species and it's impossible to imagine our way into anybody else. But um, but I actually want to ask you about voice, you know, which because I just love his voice. And I think, um, I think too, like, like this book, reminded me in some ways of another book I love, which is um, Time Traveler's Wife and also um, Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders, which is which was one, it's like a sci-fi book, the, the Birds in the Sky, but also, but both of them have this like kind of realism that often like will surprise me on the page. I'll be like, oh, I recognize that. And like, oh, you can write about that. Like you can get that close to real life on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something about all the, all, all three of your books um, the, the the two I mentioned in yours, you know, have these this sort of magical realism element, and so it probably is even more important to get that voice that just feels like, oh, I know this person, right? So, can you talk about achieving that voice, connecting to it, and whether you know whether it's sort of uh, channeling it or editing it or both? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, channeling it is a really like nice, mystical, but also accurate way of putting it. I think. Um, I started out writing this book from Anita's perspective, um, and you know the narrator is is Neil, the the boy, as you mentioned, and um, the Anita being his kind of girl next door, girl he's always been in love with, um, and I just didn't get what I needed out of her as a character, and I I can understand why now. Like her voice was sort of dull; it was a little somber. It was like, it just didn't have range or kind of inflection in any real way. And the reason for that, which I now understand is like, this is a character who, especially as a teenager, teenager does not have an inner life. Um, That's the whole point. She's so ambitious that all she cares about is achievement. And so it's almost like I would have had to do some like Miranda July type, like dramatic irony if I were really going to write her well. And that, that also wasn't going to fit this um, uh, this uh, project, even though I love Miranda July. So what I ended up doing is head hopping um, a few times. I wrote from her mom's perspective, and that kind of wasn't working either. Um, and then finally, there was sort of a side character in um, one version of this. And I was like, what if it were her neighbor? Like, what if it were someone who it also it solved another problem of like, I wasn't going to have to write a million gold thefts. Um, if I wrote from someone who did, who wasn't in on it the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was going to be less clunky. So I just started writing Neil's voice. And like the instant I started writing in his voice, like that channeling thing that you mentioned happened. Um, and I'm cur- I don't entirely know why um, that happened when I like entered a 15 year old boy's voice. Like, what about me is a 15 year old boy? What isn't? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, but I think like it would be so much easier for mm-hmm. us to write a man than for someone from a dominant identity to write like a non-dominant identity. Like, I think we just understand a little more what it's like to like be in that kind of head because so much of art and so much of culture and just so much of the way that the like public discourse operates is in terms that they have set, right? And so it just wasn't that hard for me to understand what it was like to be a teenage boy. Um, the main thing was I had to. Yeah. But I would also just on a little side note, say that 
we also have, because we are complex, there are places where we have privilege and there are places. So we actually have uh, our own blind spots that we can access <laughs> to give our characters. <laughs> to give our characters <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we, I think we give parts of ourselves to each character, mm-hmm. the parts that need to be given. And then, you know, then we base the rest on like someone we saw sat, sat next to in class in third grade and always wondered about what is it like to be that person, right? It's that negotiation of sort of self and non-self. I was wondering if there would be pushback, not from like, are you allowed to do this? But but from like the sort of like a lot of male writers are writing female characters because there's this sense that like women buy books and women only want to read women characters. And I just was curious if you had any of that like pushback. Yeah, I mean, I, I think more in like the marketing of it, there's been this like eagerness to tell people like it's really about strong women. Um, interesting. Which like, yes, it is. But like, it's also OK. <laughs> Like it's still by a woman. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, you said, you know, okay, this is so not what I'm about. Like, I'm not writing this book to like as a way to reach, you know, brown girls who have never seen themselves, whatever. So, and I, and and you know, as as a writer who sometimes writes queer characters and sometimes doesn't, and you know, and there's a sort of like if you if there's a book in the world that doesn't exist, you know, you mm-hmm. have to write it. Um, and not always feeling like that, like sometimes feeling like, you know, like I might be, maybe want to cook a great meal for some people, but maybe um, I don't want it to be a meal nobody's ever had before. I just want it to taste really good. Anyway, <laughs> I'm wondering what does inspire you to to write? Yeah, um, well, that's such a tricky line because I think I I do identify with the like, you have to write the book that you need to see in the world. Um, what I really object to is the like representational politics of like, you're here to speak for your community mm-hmm. and like, you know, plant the brown girl flag, plant the queer flag. Like, no, that's not what, that's not what art does. Um, it, sometimes it belongs to that flag planting or it's in communication with that flag planting, but it's not the flag. Right. And so I think I was just like primally motivated to write this thing that I needed to see, um, uh, for myself, not for anyone else. Um, but I think I like I grew up with a sense of there always being like this un, unspoken and unspeakable part of life. Like I was, I was sort of a, a mystically curious kid, mm-hmm. and then I started reading and was like, oh, these people who write these books are also curious about what it means to have an, an ineffable experience. Um, like what is happening when two people are sitting next to each other and cannot speak to each other. Like writing is about understanding those moments. Um, So I think like every writer, I was a reader first and that's what pulled me in. Absolutely. I love like that mystically curious. (laughs) That might be the title of this podcast. We'll see what other quotes come up, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So do you have a question? Because I've just no. Go ahead. She, you're just <laughs> bubbling over. So, <laughs> well, I, I'll just. <laughs> so one of the things I thought about later is I thought about the sort of magical realism element, or I don't know if that's the right language for it, but and I thought, you know, there's a way in which you could read it and not think that it actually, like, quote unquote, worked. I mean, I didn't read it that way. I, I sort of read you mean it in the magic. Yeah. So you're saying, oh yeah, yeah, like the gold, like drinking this this lemonade <laughs> made out of gold, um, you know, 
and 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 wanting that gold to transfer the qualities of the owner or the the intentions of the giver um, to the to the drinker. <laughs> um, yeah, like that. Well, it's sort of funny because they're both really. I mean, they're doing it out of these really career ambitious moments, and they don't end up necessarily succeeding career-wise in an overtly obvious way. <laughs> and then they're sort of going after the love piece, but anyway, I won't give it's it all hard, away. It's but... hard not to have spoilers. Huh? I know. I'm just going to leave. So I'm <laughs> just going to ask you if you if you were trying to walk that line or how you thought about the, the magic part of it. First of all, that's so funny because no one has told me that they thought it didn't work because you're kind of right. Like Neil is just a stoner in the second half. Um, I grew I really, up in Berkeley, so I'm sure I met him. Of course. Um, I I always thought of it as like definitely magic in the like in the space of the novel, but I have heard from more than one person that they read it entirely as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's interesting. There are speculative fiction writers who walk that line between like, is it real? Is it metaphor? I think beautifully, like Shirley Jackson's stories, a lot of them can be read that way, right? Even Murakami to some degree does things that way. Banana Yoshimoto, like there are so many writers who do that, that I just thought that was a cool compliment to be like, okay, you don't even like magic realism, but you like followed this. I'm fine with that. Do whatever backflips you need to justify the fact that you read a non-realist book. Um, uh, but I mean, I also think like there's this anecdote about um, when Stanley Kubrick made The Shining um, into a movie. Stephen King said like in the book, the ghosts are real. Like there are the, mm-hmm. the overlook is haunted. Um, Jack is possessed. Um, there is definitely magic. And Stanley Kubrick was like, I am not going to do things that way. It's entirely metaphorical. It's entirely psychological. And this made Stephen King very angry. I just think it's fascinating, but I think that's like how art functions is like someone else can have a full other interpretation of it. It'll be interesting as you move forward with your um, adaptation. adaptation yourself, like, oh, how much collaboration am I really interested in here? <laughs> so. Yes, we're beginning that. Um, yes. I'm, I'm mostly pretty excited because I I like don't know that much about screenwriting. Um, I know a little, but there's a lot to learn. So I actually, at least right now, don't feel like I have too much ego wrapped up in it, but I'm sure that'll change. And are you actually <laughs> writing the script or co-writing I'm it? Co-writing it. Yeah. With with Mindy Kaling. Not with Mindy. Okay. She'll be like in the room if we do a writer's room, if we get there. But um we're like talking to showrunners now. So they'll be mm-hmm. who I co-write with. So I think she's so brilliant. So I'm glad she'll be floating around this. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um okay. no, you go. I've dominated. I know, I know. I think that for me, like thinking about it's always interesting to hear about the transition of a novel, and that especially when voice is important, uh, how that translates to the visual. I was thinking about that with actually when you're talking about The Shining, it's like it's one thing to say they're metaphoric, but like those images, I mean, mm-hmm. I saw it as a teenager and it's yeah. like so they're still in my mind. So it's it's great. It's like, oh, this is a metaphor, but it's it's like blindingly real. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> blindingly um, real is right. Yeah, I don't know. There's gonna be this learning curve of like what it means to create a visual language. Like we mm-hmm. know what it means to create motifs with phrases. Um, and you know, songwriters have their own version of that. Um, but 
the the filmmaker knows, and I, I think particularly screenwriters have to figure out how to create motifs that directors can then pick up on and embellish. So I'm mm-hmm. sure the like visual language will be shots of gold at key moments. Um, but I think that's the place where I'm going to learn the most because I feel most ignorant about visual language. How about for the novel, what level of like planning or structure did you bring to it and when? How much of what? Like planning and structure, you know, like sort of like, I don't know, Aristotle's incline or whatever you might use. But and then at what Three point, tags, like you yeah. would you do, do a whole sort of discovery draft and then look for those kinds of things, motifs and such or... Or do you do, do you do a planning ahead of time? Oh no, I um, I'm a vomit drafter, um, so everything is a discovery draft for like a really long time. Um, I think I wrote like 200 pages or more before I even figured out what the thing was. Um, then I wrote 200 more pages when I realized what it was, and those didn't actually go in the book because I hadn't found the inciting incident. Speaking of screenwriting. Um, so it really took a while. Um, and some of that was actually undoing to go back to chronology. Some of that was undoing chronology because like the I had written these scenes of, of Neil and Anita when they were kids. And uh, my, my roommate who was um, who uh, my roommate when I was in grad school, who was also a novelist, was talking through things with me. And he was like, well, it's nice that you wrote the childhood scenes, but does the book actually start in childhood? And I was like, I guess not. So he was like, then those are flashbacks. You pull those up. So a lot of it was just like, I, I'm groping in the dark mm-hmm. and so I figure something out. So it's almost like seeing 20 feet in front of me. It's like for a little while, I know what I'm going to do next. And then I reach a point where I no longer know what I'm going to do. And I despair and I have a panic attack and I call that same roommate and call <laughs> other writing friends and re-outline. So it's, it's a constant negotiation of vomit draft, half outline, vomit draft, half outline. <laughs> So I actually, it's slightly different, just the idea of metaphor and motif. And at what point in the process are you intentionally pulling and pushing those, that part of the the, the writing? Yeah, yeah. I think that's sort of the second half of what you were asking too. I, I don't think it's ever intentional until like maybe the final draft. Um mm. And of course, there are a few final drafts, right? It's like the final draft before I queried. Um, there's the final draft once you work with your agent. Um, then there's the final draft once you work with your editor. So I really had three final drafts. And in each of those, I became more aware of what metaphors and motifs were there and what I was going to draw out. And some of it, I think, only comes out when someone pushes you and is like, I don't think that should be there. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, no, that that is there for a reason, why is it? Oh, it's because I was creating this motif that is going to come come through in chapter seven and then in chapter 12. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, I, yeah. Inc- that's incredibly important. Just remember that yeah. like sometimes when somebody says, cut this, it actually, you know, you can actually come back with no, no, like clarify it, emphasize mm. it, repeat it <laughs> or, you know, build on it. Yeah. Um, just going back to the motif thing, because I'm I'm always sort of interested in you know, uh, that, that piece about like, how do we create a metaphor that sometimes it stands for the whole book, right? And sometimes we have, you know, threaded metaphor for character and things like that. Uh, and I've heard different people talk about like, well, I write an exp- exploration, and then I start seeing trends, like I notice this character keeps showing up in this way. And then they'll intentionally sort of pull it out. Um, 
so, but you feel like for you, that is a final draft uh, kind of thing. So you didn't read through it and say, hmm, I, I'm noticing a trend. Um, <laughs> well, I think I started to notice trends. So, I mean, with this particular conceit, it's like the fact that the characters steal gold, drink gold, and therefore steal ambition. That was there basically from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, it's like, that's kind of a lot to work with thematically already. So I didn't have to do that much more noticing. I had to do more building, Mm -hmm. but I did start to notice things when I researched. So I had that conceit fully formed. And then I did a bunch of research into alchemy and into the Mm -hmm. gold rush. And when I did those kind of rounds of research, that's when I could say, oh, I realized that gold has meant X, Y, Z in this culture, like it has meant immortality. So hang on, are my characters kind of interested in immortality in a way? Actually, yes, this is very useful. That braids in now. So in some ways, getting outside the text was really helpful for that like motif creation. I have to say there's, there was an article in the paper, I think like yesterday about um, a native Hawaiian gold Mm -hmm. digger (laughs) uh, who was named like the white guys named him Jim Crow. And they named a road after him in this town called Downeyville in like by over East, East California. Somewhere. Okay. But hold on before you finish, just make a guess about where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> so the, there's a little road called Jim Crow road named after supposedly this Hawaiian native Hawaiian, you know, gold digger. And, and so now the, the road, the, there are four people who live on the road who are trying to get them to change the name of the road because they feel like, they not, don't want it's not that. deeply honoring this guy. They can't find out more about him, like what his real name was. It's, anyway, I just thought it made me think of your book a little bit. Because the gold rush was effed up. Yes, that is that is the summary of the historical portions of this book. And basically all of it. Because like those aren't the stories of the gold rush that you hear in school. Like that is truer to what that period of American history is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I love that about your book too. I, I I kind of think you you probably just can get, do anything because you're so talented. <laughs> it's like like I don't think someone else could come in and be like, I'm going to I'm going to drop in some historical writing by the character and necessarily make it work so well. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, before we go, speaking of that, before we go to steal this, um, I'm just curious, like, because you've taught sort of from middle school through graduate school and all over the world, or like at least in three or four countries. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if, if there's like one thing that like all the writers you've taught that like you would, you know, what's the piece of advice that you would give to kind of any writer? <laughs> Um, I tell my students that they need to throw things away more often than they are willing to. Um, And I mean, it's a version of kill your darling. So it's not like any kind of revolutionary piece of advice. But I think one thing that like can happen when we're working with people who are trying to become writers who are just starting out, it's a lot of the work is just giving them the perspective that like a certain number of years have provided of like, mm-hmm. I've been doing this for more years than you have. I have thrown away more in my life than you have ever written. And I tr- promise you that's important. And so w- one thing that my my friends and I sort of talk to each other about a lot and we're, when we're telling each other it might be okay if that one chapter didn't work, is it's not kill your darlings. It's throw away this thing because you know you can make something better, not just to part with it. Um, 
The other thing I teach them, which I stole from a professor of mine um, in college named Ann Fadiman, um, is she keeps she she made us keep a physical copy of Roger's Thesaurus on the desk next to us um, <laughs> while we wrote, and she would go through at office hours. You would show up and you would have written like a thousand word piece and she would go through it with you word by word. Um, and over the course of an hour, you probably only got into the second sentence. Um, checking, she'd be like, okay, is this, you said cream. Is it like, is it like eggshell cream? Is it like off white? Now you can tell I've been moving. Um, <laughs> every single word had to be so precise and she would make you turn to the thesaurus sometimes not to get a fancier word, but to sharpen your meaning. And that's what a physical copy of a Roger's thesaurus does. And I terrorize my students by making them do this as well. And it's the students who want to be writers who hate this the most because they think what they've done is good enough already. Mm-hmm. students who are just starting to figure out what writing is often love it. They're like, oh my gosh, you taught me so much about how how many different ways a sentence can go. And I think that sort of, it's this Philip, the Philip Roth quote that's like all being a writer is, is moving sentences around. If you really want to do this, you have to just like moving sentences around. Otherwise, you're not going to like this. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's always good to remember that it's, that you, you know, throwing things out isn't a bad sign. <laughs> it's a good sign. Yes. <laughs> All right, it is time for Steal This. Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have you come across in your readings and wanderings that you would like to take and make your own? Uh, would you Would you like to begin? <laughs> um, I j- have been reading Priest Daddy um, by Patricia Lockwood, uh, which is just an amazing memoir. Um, and I, I don't know how to steal this, but I want to steal her particular eye for just like playful image. Like she does the thing that all great realists do, which is like observe something concrete in the world that has kind of inherent situational irony, weirdness, or comedy. But then she's also a poet. So she layers a poetic image on top of that. So it's mm-hmm. like reading like, like friends in realism layered with like a Miranda July wittiness and then just a poet's eye. And so I just like, I don't have all her registers, but I really want to figure out how to do those registers of prettiness on top of humor, on top of just like actual realism. It sounds like a linguistic parfait. So just... (laughs) I love that. You should blurb her next time. Uh, well, I'm just going to circle back to what, what we talked about, what, you know, I want what I want to steal from, from gold diggers, which is, which is that, um, well, one, the chronology, I mean, I, the chronology, I, I think what, what, what the, I was sort of mulling and mulling in my, in this very private way that wasn't prepped for the interview, but it was just like chrono- chronology. And that's so funny because I was just teaching a brilliant student and I, and she has a super complicated nonfiction, like family history. And I was, and I was saying like, lean into chronology except where you have a really good reason not to so I mean it's not that I didn't know it but but to see it executed so well and I think that piece of the the narrative voice that can that can sort of stretch like that so that they can kind of hold it all together and pull us through that I think there are even moments that you would know better than I were where where you sort of get a little like a little kneel from the future saying this is where we're going <laughs> yeah so I I just thought that was so deft so I'll steal that <laughs> <laughs> And 
Well, Not actually, I know. I was going to turn around and I was like, "Where? here's my thesaurus. Yes, Angie loves a thesaurus. It's true. Here, she's got it. So I'm just going to make make sure this is closer to my desk. So that's what I'm stealing. It's been a pandemic year of like of our kids kicking us out of, of different offices we set up. So yes. this, this was close to your desk one time. Yes. <laughs> Reclaim it, Angie. Thank you. Um, so, so wonderful to talk to you. So, um, People can find your your book everywhere. Books are sold. Where else do you, do you want them to track you down? What are your socials? <laughs> I uh, I'm barely using them right now for my own mental health, but um, good Twitter. <laughs> my Twitter is at Sanjana Sathian, which will be spelled out, I assume, in your show notes because it's it impossible is. to spell. Um, uh, yeah, and if they want to buy the book. Get it from your local indie um, uh, in the Bay Area. Green Apple Books um, had a bunch and some were signed. Um, I'm also sending people to Acapella Books in Atlanta, which is my local indie, um, and they still have signed copies. Oh, how wonderful. Excellent. Yeah, and we will put a link up. We usually do the bookshop.org link, so, but that, that mm-hmm. connects people to their local bookstore too. Yeah. So, Well, thank you so much. I, I can't wait for the series and the next book, and I'm a fan, so thank you. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs>